Well, good morning. Um, it's such a privilege to be here this morning. Um, boy, singing that last song, it's hard to sing it without um, just tearing up because uh, God has done so much. I just celebrated my 50th year of being a Christian uh, last uh, May, and um, I've never gotten over that Christ died for me that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day, and that he saved me from the wretched life that I was living and set me on a path and a course in life that is still amazes me. And I look forward to the day that um, I'm going to see him face to face. Amen? Boy, that was weak. That was really weak. <laughs> you know, when you think about what, what Christ uh, has done and that you're going to see him one day, it should be a heartier amen. So it's going to be great when we see him. Amen? amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, we're going to be looking at um, the book of, not the whole book, but the book of Ecclesiastes uh, passage out of there. Uh, Ecclesiastes is kind of a, a different book, um, obviously in the Old Testament, written by Solomon. Um, it, um, it's an autobiographical report that Solomon did. He investigated uh, human pursuits, uh, pursuits of pleasure, pursuits of wisdom, uh, pursuits of wealth, uh, pursuits of work, and other pursuits. And he included that none of those pursuits uh, provide ultimate meaning for a human being in and of themselves. So Solomon kind of came to a conclusion at the end of uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, and he said the conclusion, the central purpose of our lives is to fear God and to keep his commands. That's nothing new. We've all heard that before. <clears throat> it's interesting that throughout the book he uses the word vanity or uh, futility and expresses the fruitlessness of a life that we try to be satisfied with that life apart from God. And he said that it's a, a fruitless pursuit, but we all know that billions of people on this planet, that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to find a fulfilled life apart from God, apart from a relationship with Christ. Um, and even we as Christians sometimes can fall into that trap of, of um, trying to find fulfillment outside of what God's will is for us and the way that God is working in our lives. In fact, he uses the word vanity and futility throughout the book um, 38 different times. So that's obviously one of the main themes. Uh, and, and it is hard to understand life. It is difficult with all the varied things that take place that we see in our world or, or we see in our own personal lives or family or friends or co-workers or, or whatever it might be, people in our neighborhood everybody goes through so many different kinds of things, various kinds of, of trials and difficulties and things that really seem unfair and, <clears throat> and things that are unfair. Uh, and, and so Solomon is going through the book, <clears throat> trying to tell us that all these things make better sense when you trust God and you know that God is uh, sovereign. And so... Um, 
One of the key verses, and we're not going to be looking at this chapter, we're going to look at chapter 7, but one of the key verses that kind of gives kind of a, a great overview of the book uh, and, uh, and the purposes of God is in uh, chapter 3, verse 14. He says this, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there's nothing to take from it. And, so, and God has so worked that people should fear him. They should be in awe of him. And so, looking at this passage in chapter 7 of uh, Ecclesiastes, the key to understanding this passage is, like lots of other passages in Ecclesiastes, is to understand that God is sovereign. And I know uh, Pastor Mark has been going through the attributes of God, and one of them I think he's already done is sovereignty. God is sovereign. When I first learned that doctrine, that teaching, and as I have been a Christian, like I said, for 50 years, I understand God's sovereignty even better, and it gives me peace, and it gives me rest, and I don't have to figure out everything. And so Solomon is going to be um, sharing with us um, through chapter 7 about here's some things that God says that seem like polar opposites what he says. But these are things that God has ordained, that God has made for us to do and to be a part of. Uh, it's interesting that um, there's many things that God does that we don't understand. We, we, his thoughts are above our thoughts, right? That's what the Bible says. His ways are above our ways. Uh, his ways are past finding out, all these kinds of things. But Paul said in Romans chapter 12 that we have, as God's people, we have the opportunity to prove that God's will is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. The word prove there means to test for approval or to test for genuineness. That's what our life is really about, that we have the opportunity to prove by obeying God, by doing what he says, we can prove that God's will is good, it's acceptable. It's perfect. There could be nothing better for his children than what his will is. Difficult for us? Oh, no doubt. Um, hard for us to understand? Many times we don't really understand why God does what he does. But by obeying and walking with him, we get to prove, we get to show, we get to demonstrate for ourselves that God's will really is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. In this passage, um, Solomon uses the word better eight different times. And so um, I call this eternal counsel for better living. I know that there's a book out there by an author I won't mention is, that says your best life now. Um, if this is our best life now, we're in big trouble. But there's a better way to live this life that honors God and that gives us fulfillment and gives us a closeness with Christ that um, we can get no other way. And so um, he uses this word better eight different times. So I, I kind of just pulled those things out and uh, kind of highlighted five different ones of those. Um, and really the whole point of this and what I want you to think about is that the end of the matter is better than its beginning. The end of the trial 
is better than the beginning. The end of the difficulty is better than the beginning because God is doing something. That's what we have to keep in our mind is that God is active. He's alive. He's doing something in our life. He's working and he's sovereign. He knows what he's doing. And so we want to look at these um, different things. Um, Let me just read this passage to you. And then um, under each one of the points, um, I've put the the verses from uh, this passage so that you can re-look at them again. But I want to read it so that we can kind of hear it all together. A good name is better than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when the face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of the mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than to then for one to listen to the song of fools for as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot so is the laughter of a fool and this too is futility for oppression makes a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts the heart the end of a matter is better than its beginning patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit do not be eager to yeah do not be eager in your heart to be angry for anger resides in the bosom of fools do not say why is that the former days were better than these for it is not from wisdom that you ask about this wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun The wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word, we pray your spirit would be our teacher. Uh, Father, um, these are some difficult verses. They're difficult words, and, and we don't always fully understand. We don't, we don't live in the context that, that Solomon wrote in. Um, we have your whole word now, um, and so sometimes we look into the Old Testament and specific passages, and it's hard to kind of relate to it. Um, he's writing to a people, uh, a Jewish people, Father, that we don't all know all their customs. We don't know all that was going on. But Father, we pray your spirit would take your word and apply it to each of our hearts uh, so that, Father, we might live in such a way that honors you and glorifies you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, you have your notes. Hopefully you have um, a set of notes there. Um, the reason I like to hand out notes is because... Um, the way we learn, we don't learn as well just listening to something. We learn much better if we can listen and see something at the same time. I skinnied down these notes as best I could because I didn't want to hand you like 12 pages. But, and I don't have 12 pages up here either, by the way, so don't panic. 
Um, so the first thing he says is that a good reputation is better than riches. Here's the verse again. A good name or good reputation is better than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. So a good name, a good reputation is highly valued. It's better than precious ointment. Precious ointment had the idea of that there was much joy. Uh, it had the idea also of prosperity. It made me think of, um, of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' sister. Remember when she broke that alabaster jar and she spread the perfume that was in there on Jesus? Jesus said she was anointing his body. Um, it was very expensive. Uh, in fact, in the text, it says that it was worth 300 denarii, which is almost a year's wages. Um, but it's interesting that Martha isn't really known for that, though that's in the scripture. Jesus said that every time the gospel is preached, what she's going to be known for is her reputation of pouring out that oil and sacrificing what was a year's value there by putting it on Jesus. And that's, Jesus said that's what people will remember. That's her reputation. Um, so a good name is highly valued. It is better than precious ointment. A good reputation is more rare than things that add wealth and riches. Um, a good reputation is more valuable than the money that you have in the bank. Because you can have all kinds of money in the bank, but your reputation is shot. Um, and the other thing is, you can take your reputation to the grave with you. You can't take your finances with you. As we all know the saying, there's no, you know, um, cargo vans behind the hearse. You're not bringing all your stuff with you. Um, my wife mentioned, um, she was reading a book and it said something like, um, you know, the one with the most toys wins. Really, the one with the most toys still dies. So it doesn't matter how much you've accumulated. What's more valuable than all of our accumulations, all that we've done, is our reputation. And so a good name is of, is of higher value than a good reputation. A good name is built on spiritual character. It's built on faithfulness. It's built on humility. It's built on service to others. That's where we get um, a good reputation. It's interesting in Acts chapter 3, we're familiar with this, um, when the first deacons were going to be chosen, remember the apostles were there, and they said, we need to concentrate on the preaching and prayer, and he, they said to the congregation, this is the early, early, early church, said to the congregation, go among yourselves and find men, and they gave these qualities, and one of them was men of good reputation, because that's so important. What do others think and say about, what do they see in these people's lives? When he talked to wrote to Timothy, he said the same thing. When you're going to choose an elder, one of the qualifications is that they have a good reputation. A good reputation is valuable. That's what Solomon is saying. And he's seen it all. He had, he had all the riches you could possibly have. Uh, just uh, I can't even start to describe all the stuff that he had. But he was getting gold from different places. He had ships. He had horses. He had buildings. He, he built so many different things. He had everything you could possibly have. But a reputation, he says, is more important than all of that. Listen to what uh, Proverbs says. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. That's Proverbs 22.1. Proverbs uh, 3, 3 and 4 says this, Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. 
write them on the tablets of your heart so that you will find favor and a good reputation in the sight of God and the sight of man. George Washington said a reputation can be broken, once broken. It might be, it might be possible to repair it, but the world will always keep their eye on the spot that was cracked. So when you ruin your reputation, it's hard to bring that back because it has such value. The second half of that verse, in in verse 1, he says, on the day of your birth, you haven't established either. You don't have a reputation or you don't have wealth. Um, But the day of your death tells the story. Really, your whole life is told by the day of your death. What do people remember about you? What do people say about you? Um, I would encourage you to, if you appreciate someone, tell them before they're dead and you say it at their memorial service, right? Sometimes they'll have um, an open mic and people get up and say, oh, I loved Brother Joe. He was so great and he did this, that, and the other thing. But I never got the chance to tell him. Well, Joe was 80. You had plenty of chance to tell him. So I would encourage you, don't wait till the guy or the, or the lady dies. If you appreciate someone, if they have a good reputation, if they minister to people, explain or, or, or express that to them and tell them how much you appreciate them. The day of your death tells the story. Um, Emerson said this, it's not the length of life that matters, but the depth of life. So we all want to live long, but how do we live is really the more important thing. What do people remember us by? What will people think about us when, they, when your name comes up in a conversation? What do people say? What do people think? Um, a good reputation is better, and the day of your death is going to really reveal what kind of life did you really live. Um, you can take a good name to the grave. Um, the day of death for the wealthy, though, is something totally different because the wealthy, if they're spiritually poor, that is, they're not saved, um, it will not be better for them. And so the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. That's what Solomon said. I, as I thought about this, I was thinking about, when we were thinking about reputation, I thought about the two brothers that were raised in a Midwestern town, little town, someplace in the Midwest. And they, um, from when they were really young, boy, they just terrorized this little town. Uh, they'd been put in jail lots of different times. They were thieves, um, they uh, they just did all kinds of really awful stuff. And as they got to later in life, one of the brothers died. And so the other brother went to uh, the pastor in town, and he was fairly new to the uh, community. He'd only been there about a year. And he said, and the brother was thinking, well, he doesn't really know about us, so I can ask him to do the memorial service for me or for my brother. And um, he asked if he would do it. And um, he said, and there's one request I have for you. And that is, I want you to say that my brother was a saint. And the pastor said, well, you know, I know I've only been here a year, but I've, I've heard quite a bit, and I'm not sure that I can say that, but let me think about it. Let me pray about it. So the next day he calls the guy and says, yeah, I, th- I, I think I can do it. I think I can say that your brother was a saint. And so uh, the next weekend the service happens, and, you know, they start. They have a couple of songs, and somebody reads the obituary, and um, and a couple people get up, and some of his relatives, and, and then the pastor gets up, and he starts to speak, and um, he begins to relay the many awful things that this guy had done. And, and the other brother, the living brother, was about to stand up and to stop the whole thing, 
And the pastor said, but compared to his brother, he was a saint. Okay, do I have to explain that to you? Or That's, that's a funny joke. It's reputation, it goes to you all the way to your grave. Um, this is what Paul said. Because for the believer... Um, the reason we can look forward to death, that, that death is better than birth, is because of where we go after that. Um, Paul said this, I am hard-pressed in both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. See, Paul knew that the day of his death was going to be very much better. Um, for the Christian, here's just a couple of things that I thought about. For the Christian, the day of your birth brought you into a world of sin and defilement. But the day of your death brings you into a world of holiness and purity. The day of your birth brought you into a world of toil and labor. The day of your death brings you into a world of rest and peace. The day of your birth brought you into a world of care and sorrow. But the day of your death brings you into a world of service and joy. The day of your... um, the day of your death, oops, I got the wrong page. Ah, there it is right there. The day of your birth brought you into a world of disappointment, but the day of your death brings you into a world of unimaginable expectation. And you're probably familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, Eye has not seen nor ear heard all that God has prepared for those who love him. There is an amazing expectation that the Christian has on the day of his death We're going to see Christ for the very first time or at the rapture, either one of those two. The day of your birth brought you into a world of certain death, but the day of your death brings you into a world of the fullness of eternal life. So a second thing that um, Solomon says is better is a funeral is better than a party. Now, you probably don't hear that from most people, but that's what Solomon said. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, because that, that is a funeral, is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. The mind of the fools is in the house of pleasure. So I said, you can learn more at a funeral than you can at a party. Obviously, we all know that the end of every life is death. Everyone dies, right? We all have that appointment. That's an appointment you can't escape. Every person is going to die. And so Solomon says that it kind of seems contradictory, but who would rather go to a funeral than a party? I mean, Funerals aren't that much fun. If the person's a believer, obviously it's much, much better. A funeral teaches us about reality. It teaches us about the brevity of life. It teaches us about eternity. It teaches about what's valuable, what's really important. Uh, Not much of that comes out at a party. I've done, I don't know how many funerals. I've done lots of memorial services, and I've done them for both Christians, and I've done them for those who are not Christians, those who are unsaved. Um, and in every one of those, I usually give some kind of a, an invitation. I give the gospel. I share Christ uh, in some way. And um, I don't ask people to come forward right then, but I'll say that if you have any questions or you'd like to know more about a relationship with God or you're unsure of your relationship with God, I'd, I'll be standing up here or anytime. Um, please come up and talk with me. Um, I have not had one person come up to, and talk to me about salvation. 
there's been lots of Christians who come up and say, wow, I appreciate you giving the gospel, um, or wow, that was really good, or whatever. Um, It's because the living are the ones, the living Christians are the ones who understand about death. We understand where we go. And so that's why he can say going to a funeral is better than going to a party because we learn more. This is what James said. Come now, you, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. For you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. That's what Christians understand. We don't know how long we're going to live. We've all had friends, relatives, maybe a spouse, maybe a child, maybe a neighbor. And we might have said at that, with that particular person, they died so young. It's because we don't know when that's going to be. But for the Christian, we know where we go. And so most Christians don't want to think about death, not because they don't know where they're going to go, but they don't want to think about how they might die. I mean, I have a list of things that the Lord knows, ways that I don't want to go to heaven. I know right as soon as that's over, I'm in heaven, which is great. It's just I don't, I don't want to, like, I don't want to burn up. I don't know, anybody would like to do that? No, okay, I didn't think so. Uh, there's, there's a list of things, you know. I'd rather, like, go to sleep and wake up in heaven. Wouldn't that be great? In America, this means yes. That means no. Okay, good. I'm just seeing if you're with me. Um, then uh, the psalmist said this, David said this, Lord, let me know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days like a hand's width and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. In other words, it's very, very short compared to eternity. Certainly all mankind standing is a mere breath certainly every person walks around as a fleeting shadow they certainly make an uproar for nothing they amass riches and do not know who will gather them and now lord for what do i wait my hope is in you david's hope was not in his riches david obviously we all know david did a lot of sinning they made a lot of mistakes. But even with all that, God called him a man after his own heart. David understood about the brevity of life. And that's why it's, a funeral is better for us than a party because a funeral helps us to realize the brevity, the shortness of life. It can happen at any time. And we need to be loving people and serving God and following what he has for us. Sorrow is better is a better teacher than laughter. Sorrow is better than laughter because a great part of worldly laughter is no better than folly. In fact, the Hebrew word here in, this, in these verses for laughter means to laugh at, to scorn, to mock, to laugh uh, at others' calamities. Um, worldly laughter doesn't really have any value because they're usually laughing at someone else. Um, Cheerfulness, on the other hand, and joy is much different and should be experienced by believers on a daily basis. We can, even in the midst of the difficulties and trials of life, there should be a cheerfulness about us. There should be a joy about us. That's what the Holy Spirit produces. What? Love, 
joy, peace, patience. And so no matter the circumstances of our life, we can have joy. Even in the times of sadness, we can still have joy. Sorrow is a better teacher than laughter. Um, Sorrow is a better teacher than laughter because much of worldly merriment Merriment tends to have no intellectual or moral good. All their jokes and all their laughter. It's, it's so difficult to even watch TV anymore of, of with all the stuff. And I'm not going to even describe much of it. If you watch any little bit, and I watch very little TV, even what I see, it's so they laugh at things that are so inappropriate. And, the, and they talk about things that are so inappropriate. Their joy, their laughter shouldn't even come across our minds we should disregard that with everything within us Um, sorrow brings lessons of wisdom sorrow when you're sorrowful where do you run you run to god you run to your relationship with christ and sorrow can bring lessons of wisdom Um, sufferers when we suffer we learn to lean on god that's why he allows trials in our life He allows trials so that we'll lean on him, so that we'll trust him in those trials, those difficulties. Um, It's interesting. Romans 5, I know you're probably familiar with this, but it it sounds weird, but Paul says, we exult in our tribulations. You exult in your tribulations? Yeah, Christians can exult. They can be joyful in their tribulations, in their difficulties. James said it this way, count it all joy when you encounter various trials notice he didn't say if you encounter them he said when you encounter them and various as the idea of many colored i mean the trials and difficulties that we face come in all kinds of shapes and sizes and forms and lengths of time but we can count it all joy because god is working in us he's doing something in our life so sorrow is a better teacher than laughter this is what uh Solomon said in Proverbs, even in laughter the heart may sorrow, and the end of mirth, amusement, may be grief. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. The righteous man, in our case, the Christian, can be satisfied from above even during times of sorrow. So we can learn more Sorrow is a better teacher than laughter. And then our heart is impacted by where our mind abides. He said um, in the verse, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of the fools is in the house of pleasure. So our mind is impacted by where our mind abides, what we think about. Um, I don't know if you know this, but 95% of your Christian life is lived between your ears. It's what we think. It's what we think about. Proverbs said, what a man thinks, so he is. Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the inner person, the mind, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what we think about um, directs us. And sometimes we say those things. Um, and so our heart is impacted what, what our minds abide on. If the house of mourning is not just a funeral, um, but it ha- talks about the soberness of life uh, and the soberness of our spiritual life, our relationship with God, our relationship with his word, our relationship with his will. Um, 
This is what Moses said. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. If we have the thought in mind that we know that our life is short, there's a brevity about life, and there's lots of difficulties in this life, help us to, num- help us to count each day as important. That's what he's saying. The house of pleasure uh, uh, has this difference. It gives only temporary and earthly satisfaction. Another verse, Proverbs says, There is a way that seems right unto man, but the end is the ways of death. Even in laughter the heart is sorrowful, and the end of mirth is heaviness. So even the laughter and the mirth, the amusement that the unsafe has, it never satisfies them. It never brings them joy. They have this outward happiness, but it doesn't bring them lasting joy. So number three, or in yours is C, um, a rebuke from a wise man is better than the song of fools. Here's the verse. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This too is futility. Who we listen to, and the idea of the word listen here in the Hebrew is, who do we heed or who do we hear diligently? It really makes a difference who you listen to. What's easier to hear, a rebuke or a song? None of us really like to be rebuked. Nobody really likes to be confronted, but sometimes we need that. I remember as a young Christian, um, as I was started to grow and um, I felt like God was moving me towards full-time ministry. I started to go into Bible college, and um, I, I was still working for Safeway at the time. And this really dear friend of mine, in fact, he just passed away a few months ago in his home with the Lord. Um, he was on staff at the church I was going to, and uh, he called me up and said, Hey, Dave, what time do you get off? And I said, uh, I'll get off at 4. And he said, Hey, can you come by the office? i got something I, I want to talk to you about. I said, Sure. His name was Frank. And I said, Sure, Frank, I, I can be there. So I went there, and... Um, he said, you know, um, I know, because we've talked, I know you want to, you're looking at going to full-time ministry. And I said, yeah. And he said, and, and you know, you've started kind of that process, and we're all excited about that. And we see, you know, things in, that God's doing in your life, which is great. But he said, here's one thing I need to talk to you about. And he, he told me about something that he saw in my life that needed to change. Um, and it was interesting, that morning, my devotions, I'd read that, in fact, I'd read this verse um, do, not, do not rebuke a scoffer, for he will hate you. Rebuke a wise person, and he will love you. And so I had that in my mind from my devotions that morning. And it helped me. God already knew that Frank was going to do this, obviously, even before Frank called me. He knew what verse I was going to read. And so he used that because a rebuke helped me it helped me to see that there was something in my life that needed to change and needed to be different. If I'm going to go into full-time ministry, um, I need to have a good reputation, right? I need to do as many things right as I possibly can. Obviously, we don't always do everything right. We still sin. Um, but who do you listen to? Do you listen to... And interesting that what, it's, what Paul said about the Scriptures, he said all Scripture 
is inspired of God or given by inspiration. That means it's God-breathed. So this word in the original writings was breathed out by God. And what we have is a very accurate uh, English rendering of the early texts of Scripture. So he says, all Scripture is profitable. For, for what? For teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for instruction in righteous living, that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly furnished, equipped for every good work. We need the word of God to rebuke us at time. That's what its purpose is. It literally means to knock you down. And then when he said it's good for correction, that means to stand you back up. So not only does God sometimes tell us you're wrong, this needs to change. He does that through his word and by his spirit. Um, But he says, here's what you should be doing. Here's the way you should be going. And so it's important Who do we listen to? Um, Another one um, in this subject is a rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a thousand blows into a fool. So if we really have biblical understanding, if we really understand what it means that we're Christians, that we're God's people, that we're God's child, that rebuke is going to go deeper into our lives to help us because we're going to respond hopefully correctly about that, then a hundred blows goes on to a fool who's not going to listen and doesn't matter what. Then the third or second thing under this one is both songs and laughter of fools bring little value. Fool's laughter is likened to a crackling of thorns set on fire under a pot. Um, And I'm sure we've all had a fire, a campfire or Maybe you have um, a fire pit at your house that uses real wood. Um, you put it in. Sometimes you'll use, um, you know, twigs or whatever um, that you're going to help start that fire so the bigger logs will catch on fire. But you hear the crackling, you hear, and, and that stuff that starts the fire goes away quickly, and that's what he's likening to. He says that the laughter of fools is like the crackling thorns set on fire under a pot. They're noisy, they burn up quickly, and they have no lasting value. A a fourth thing, so your D, is the end of a matter is better than its beginning. And this is the one that we need to have in our mind because there are many difficulties. There's many things that we've all faced. We could all, if I asked you, you could all list the difficult things that you have faced in your life and, and you may be even facing some of them now. Um, But we need to have in our mind that the end of something that God is doing in our life is better than the beginning. The beginning is usually the tough part, the hard part, the part we don't understand, the part that's difficult, that hurts, and it may be unfair. Um, It's things outside of our control. Those things happen all the time. But Solomon says the end of a matter is better than its beginning. So here's the verses. For oppression makes a wise man mad. And a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. So the end of a matter if you deal with it properly, is better than its beginning. So pressure and temptation 
can cause us to act foolishly. It can make a wise man mad. We can act like we're insane, right? If we're not thinking about God is at work in this, and though I don't understand it, and though it doesn't feel good, and though I don't know what to do next, God is at work, and that's the way we need to see it. So, it's interesting that this word oppression means to treat with violence and injustice. And it was used about Christ in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, when it says this, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. How do we keep from going mad when we are under affliction or temptation? It's interesting that Peter used Jesus as the example. And he says this, Jesus, who, while being abusively insulted, he did not insult in return. While suffering, he did not threaten, but kept entrusting himself to him, the Father, who judges righteously. The way that you don't go mad, the way that you don't respond in a negative way, the way that you don't respond badly when things are going south and you want to go north, the way that you should respond to these things and not go crazy over them is that you keep on entrusting yourself to the Father who judges righteously. He knows what's right. And so I I, I entrust myself to him. Um, I turn myself over to him. The idea is for safekeeping. And, and it's a continual action. It's not like one time. You continue. Jesus continually entrusted himself during the time that he was being beaten and flogged and mistreated and all that. You know, he didn't open his mouth. He didn't say anything negative. But he kept on in trust. He kept on. That means it's a present tense. He kept on doing it. So you keep on entrusting yourself to God. You keep putting yourself in God's safekeeping during the difficulties, trials, and even temptations. You take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. When I first learned that, this is, this is what I did for me. When I would think of something wrongly or negatively or I was thinking something bad, something I shouldn't be thinking about, um, some temptation or some, uh, something about another believer or something about God. Um, I would picture my hand taking that thought and lifting it up to God and say, God, this is not what you want for me. This is not the thinking that I need to have. I need to have biblical thinking. I need to be thinking rightly. I need to be entrusting myself to you during this trial that I have no control over, but you do. So I keep on entrusting myself. Again, it's a present tense. I keep on doing it. Because usually trials, don't they're not like, bam, and it's gone, right? Trials aren't like that, that way. They, they last a long time. They're, they're varied. It's interesting in James when he says that, um, that um, we should count a lot of joy when you encounter various trials in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He uses a word for Joseph's coat of many colors. He uses that Greek word for that. So we can say that our trials are variegated. They're many colored trials. They're, they're, they're all kinds of different links. Uh, they, they happen at different times. Um, they're just different. They're, it's like a coat of many colors. Comes in all kinds of shades. And so 
we don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know the intensity that's going to be. And so that's why we keep on entrusting ourselves to the one who judges righteously. And that's our Heavenly Father. Suffering can either make you or break you. Depends on how you respond to it. Then he says, patience is better than being prideful when under pressure and keeps you from anger, which is identified with fools. He said, um, since the end of a matter is better than its beginning, patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for the anger resides in the bosom of fools. So patience is better than being prideful when under pressure. Um, patience and humility as you trust God will be under pressure will make the matter better than its beginning so if you patient in fact again that that passage in James you count all joy he says and let patience have its perfect work patience has the idea of abiding under the pressure remaining under the pressure the pressure of the difficulty the trial Um, we we all want to escape But it's better to abide under that trusting God. So let patience have its perfect work in you. That's what James says. So it's better to have patience in trial and difficulty um, and under these pressures instead of being prideful um, and instead of letting yourself become angry, which is identified with fools. This is the way Peter said it. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, having cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I preached that passage a Sunday morning and a week later, my wife, my first wife died. I got home after preaching that passage in 1 Peter um, and my wife had a stroke that day, Sunday afternoon. And six days later, that next Saturday, she was in heaven. And so I got, I got to live that verse, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. Let patience have its perfect work. Abide, there was nothing I could do. I couldn't change the situation. But getting mad at God and taking, taking out my sorrow on someone else is not right. And so we've all had things like that. And hopefully in our life, we can look back at those times and say, thank you, God, that you helped me to respond correctly to this. This pastor friend of mine, Frank, and I don't even remember the context of the, the verses he was preaching, but I remember this thing that he said, and I've always remembered this. There's always a godly response. It doesn't matter what happens. There's always a godly response. And that's one of the things I've always tried to do is have a godly response no matter what takes place. Let's do this God's way. Let's see what God wants to do with this. Let's, Let's be patient under trial and difficulty because what's happened at the beginning, it's going to turn out better at the end because God's involved in it. And then wishing for the past when you thought things were better is foolish and short-sighted. And a lot of times we do that when we're under difficulty. Man, man, it's so difficult. I wish it was like it was 
We didn't have these kind of difficult situations. We weren't under this kind of pressure. I wish we were back back there. No, God's doing something. And so it's foolish and short-sighted to always be looking at the past. We shouldn't be looking back. We should be looking forward. And then I asked some questions. Is God not working all things together for good like he promised? Right? God promised that, Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good for those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose. Is that, is that a true promise or is it not? Of course it is. And we need to keep that in mind. God is working all things together. He's synergizing. He's blending. He's taking all the different aspects of stuff you're going through. And he's working it out for your good, for your benefit. So a second question I asked, if I can find it on my notes. Where'd it go? Here we go. Um, has, not he, has not God promised to complete the work he started in us? Philippians 1.6. I am confident this very thing, Paul said, that God will complete the work that he's begun in us. Or he's begun in you. He said that to the Philippians. Has God not promised he's going to complete the work he started in you? That there's going to be a time when you're going to be completed? He's promised that. So we need to abide under the pressure. We need to continually um, entrust ourselves to God. Another question didn't Jesus promise that he was preparing a place for us and that he one day come for us and receive us to himself so that where I am, he said, there you will be also, John 14. Doesn't, God promise, doesn't God's promises guarantee that the end of a matter will be better than its beginning? Doesn't all of God's promises guarantee that that's, that's true? The last one, your E on your page there, is wisdom is better than wealth. Wisdom, along with an inheritance, is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Wisdom, along with wealth, or an inheritance, some translations say, is good. It's beneficial because wisdom gives the advantage. In that first statement, he's not comparing uh, wisdom and wealth he's saying that wisdom is superior to wealth it's wisdom that gives you an advantage no matter where you're at on the wealth scale lots of wealth little bit of wealth somewhere's in between what gives you the advantage is wisdom that comes from above um, so wherever you're at on the wealth scale if you have wisdom that comes from god um that's what really matters. That's what gives you an advantage. James again says this, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously. Wow. God gives wisdom to those of his children who ask and he gives it generously. That means he gives it a lot. And the next part of that verse says, and he doesn't upbraid you for asking. He didn't say, I'm not going to give you wisdom. You asked yesterday. I gave you plenty yesterday. Why are you asking again? He doesn't say that. He doesn't upbraid us. If you lack wisdom, it doesn't matter if it's 12 times in the day. I'm asking for wisdom all the time. I get a phone call. I hear who it is. God, I need your wisdom to know what to say to this person. 
I'm asking for wisdom all the time. If you lack wisdom, which we all do, by the way, if, and you do, you could say it that way, lack wisdom, um, we should ask, and God will give it liberally. He gives it generously. Um, I'm not going to read it, but you might write down James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, and you can see the difference of wisdom that comes from above and wisdom that comes from below, the wisdom of the world. In fact, he says it's worldly, sensual, demonic. The wisdom of the world's ultimate source is Satan because he's the God of this world. And so don't listen to what the world says. Don't get your wisdom from the world. Get your wisdom from God. You can read that and you can see. Wisdom and wealth are both forms of protection. Literally, it means shade or shelter. But unlike wealth, knowledge and wisdom from God gives an advantage for spiritual life. Wealth doesn't help your spiritual life. It's nice to have some wealth. It's nice to have so you can pay your bills and your mortgage and those kind of things. But what gives you the advantage to life, because wealth can disappear quickly, right? Um, But wisdom, God gives it abundantly. He gives an abundant supply, and you can get it anytime you ask. Christ became wisdom for us. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. By his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So what is Solomon's conclusion to all these things, all these better than things that he's mentioned? Rest in God's sovereignty. That's what the conclusion is. Our lives are going to go scattered in different ways. Different things are going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. In our world today, we don't know what's going to happen. The next headline, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen in your neighborhood. You know what's going to happen in our state, in our county, in our world. You don't know. But rest in God's sovereignty. This is what he said. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has been? You can't change it anyway. You can't change what God has already planned that he's going to do. You can't straighten something that God has bent. So he says this, in the day of prosperity, be happy. So when you sense that blessing from God and things are going really well, whether it's financial prosperity or whether it's health prosperity or whatever it might be, I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel here, but when God blesses in some way, in the day of prosperity, be happy, be thankful. But in the day of adversity, consider, and that means with thought and reflection, God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. In other words, you can't figure out what God's going to do next. That's why we need to trust him all the time. Knowing that God is in control, you can enjoy his blessings and trust him in adversity because you have both come, It's they both, well, through blessings or adversity because Both have come through his hands. And don't try to figure out or worry about what might come next. 
you'll find out soon enough, right? You don't know what tomorrow will bring, but God's going to be in your tomorrows just like he's in your todays. So we'll just finish with this. This is another verse from Ecclesiastes. Solomon said, Then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. You will not be able to figure out what God is going to do next. But you can trust him no matter what he does next. Let's pray. Father, a lot of things there in this passage. I pray your spirit would just use the truths of your word to impact each of our hearts. You know what's going on in each of our lives. You know what's going on in my life. I I just will come up here and speak this and it's not for me. It's for me. And it's for your people here. And so I pray, Father, that your spirit would take whatever portions of this, whatever thoughts that come from you, whatever verses you want to implant into our hearts, that you would do that for your people because you love them, because they're your people. They're not my people. They're not the elders of this church people. They're yours. You're the one who sent your son. He bought them. They're his. And so we pray your spirit would use your word in each of our lives. We need it, Father. We need your word to penetrate. The writer of Hebrews said that your word is like a two-edged sword. It's able to discern. It's able to go down to the very bone and marrow of our lives. And we need that. I need it. And so, Father, I pray you'd use your word in our lives for your glory and for our good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we have a closing song, right? And then I'll close in prayer.